this week, the Comics Guys Explain, self-inserts when creators put themselves in their own comics. Yes, this time we will be talking about uh, times when creators of comics have shown up in the comics themselves, which has happened, you know, enough for us to make a whole episode about. (laughs) So, Darren, where does this start? The earliest one I can find in a traditional superhero comic goes back to August of 1942 and Marvel Mystery Comics number 34. If it appeared before that, uh, you know, perhaps in a humor comic or something like that, that's kind of like out of our remit, basically. I'm pretty sure this is the first time it happens in a superhero comic. And uh, in this particular issue of Marvel Mystery, the, the, the main two heroes of Marvel Mystery at this point are the Human Torch and Namor the Submariner. And their respective writers, writer-artists uh, for both of them, are Carl Burgess and Bill Everett. And so in this story, one of the, you know, one of several stories in this issue, we see that uh, the Nazis are very upset that Marvel Mystery Comics has been uh, publishing comics mocking Hitler and uh, generally, you know, speaking ill of uh, the Nazis and that sort of thing. Um, And, uh, you know, telling all of these stories about how their superheroes are beating up Nazis. And so they decide that they are going to assassinate uh, Carl Burgess and Bill Everett, and also Martin Goodman, the publisher of Marvel of uh, Timely Comics at the time. And of course, you know the heroes, you know Human Torch and Submariner, have to come rescue them. And so it's kind of like a lighthearted, funny story, but it's also kind of there's some action in it, basically, in which our heroes are you know like thwarting the efforts of Nazi assassins to take out the writers of the comic. At one point, they actually do in fact fail, and Carl Burgess actually does get poisoned. Uh, by one of the assassins. However, he does not die from it uh, simply because he's got an iron stomach and people should see what he eats normally anyway, which is clearly some sort of an inside joke, <laughs> you know, in the office, basically, that, uh, you know, we did not know about Carl before this. But the, the assassins are in the end thwarted and, uh, you know, the heroes take them away and, uh, you know, Martin Goodman immediately orders both of them back to work to, uh, you know, actually write down and draw the story that, that just happened to them. Stan Lee, obviously at the time, at Timely, was working at Timely um, as kind of like their kid intern and occasional writer and general gopher and, uh, you know, office copy boy, basically. And so he certainly was aware of this gag. Um, And he, when he took over doing some of the writing, actually doing some of the scripting for their comics, would go back to it regularly. Um, the first time that there's a Stan Lee written such story in which Stan Lee himself appears is in All Winners Number Two, which is just after the war, and that one is actually one of the text pieces that uh, was in the comics. The, the comics at the time, superhero comics, had to include pieces that were text only um, in order to qualify as magazines for postal rates, and so every comic would have a text story without images, without pictures in it. Um, that would usually just be a page or two long. And many of these were comedy throwaways that Stan would wind up writing himself. And so in All Winners, he puts himself uh, uh, into that story. Years later, obviously, uh, when he is in charge of Marvel Comics, when he's the, you know, the, the head there, um, he goes to that joke you know, very early in the career. Fantastic Four number 10 
actually, which would be the 10th total, you know, comic in the Marvel Universe at that point. Uh, in January of 1963, Doctor Doom is uh, trying to find out where the Fantastic Four's headquarters is so that he can come attack them, basically. And he goes to the Marvel offices, since Marvel is the publisher of Fantastic Four comics, and he basically forces Stan and Jack to contact Mr. Fantastic for him uh, so that he can then, you know, like, unleash his attack on them. Stan and Jack then basically become recurring characters showing up in the background of Fantastic Four stories for quite some time afterwards. The fans thought the joke was funny, and God knows Stan loved to do it and loved the self-promotion of doing it. Kind of the most legendary appearance of these two in a comic is literally um, Reed and Sue's wedding in uh, Fantastic Four Annual number 1, uh, October 1965, where the story of Reed and Sue's wedding is that a bunch of other heroes are coming to the wedding, and they all have to fend off supervillain attacks uh, all day long um, so that like nobody bothers Reed and Sue right as they're getting ready for their wedding right so all of the other superheroes in the Marvel Universe at the time make guest appearances and uh, defeat villains who are taking advantage of having the superheroes all in one place to try to attack the place and the heroes you know like primary joke motivation is to make sure that the wedding gets off, goes off well at the end of that story Jack and Stan show up at the chapel expecting to be let in and are turned away and not allowed to uh, you know, join the crowd by Dum Dum Dugan, who is working security at the wedding and doesn't recognize them. And so, like, you know, they are outraged and complaining at the, you know, like the next to last panel of the comic is the two of them complaining that that Dum Dum Dugan doesn't know who they are. So this is, like I said, it's a it's a regular gag that Stan would use for a while. And it became kind of a tradition at Marvel for these sort of characters to show up. DC didn't really do it as often. Um, and they were much later to kind of like come to the joke. The first time we see DC writers or editors or anybody showing up uh, or artists uh, showing up in their comics that I've been able to find is in Flash number 179, uh, which is May of 1968. And by that point, Flash has, uh, you know, we've, we've established the multiple Earths, right? The, the various alternate Earths of the DC universe, right? It's the Flash was the first guy to encounter Earth 2 and all of the Golden Age characters. And then the Justice League discovered Earth 3 and Earth 4 and, you know, like all of these other alternate Earths. Um, that have uh, you know become plot devices in the in the DC universe, and in issue number one seventy nine, Flash discovers the existence of Earth Prime, and Earth Prime is supposed to be us. It's supposed to be our world of the readers and everything. In this world, the heroes of the DC universe are just comic book characters who are being invented supposedly by uh, the writers and artists of the of these um, of these comics. And it is kind of like revealed over the course of this story that, in fact, the writers of DC Comics are, in fact, somehow receiving mental transmissions of the stories of these characters that are actually happening on the other planets. Right. So like every month, the writer dreams up a story of a Flash adventure that actually happened on Earth One and then writes it down as a comic book story on Earth Prime. And so... Earth Prime in every way is supposed to be our world, except, of course, clearly that, you know, our world has not been visited by, uh, you know, superheroes from Earth 1 and Earth 2 and that sort of thing. So it's like the, the, the first kind of like dividing point between our world and like this fictional version of our world of Earth Prime is in that Flash story. In 1974, Flash goes back to this joke again. 
and has to visit Earth Prime in order to defeat the trickster, who is a villain from Earth One who has escaped to Earth Prime and is having a grand old time committing crimes over there because they don't have any superheroes to stop him. And then in Justice League uh, 123 and 124, October 1975, there is an entire JLA-JSA crossover that takes place on Earth Prime. Terry Bates, Elliot S. Magan, several other characters all like appear in this. And Julie Schwartz, of course, is the you know the the, the object of most of the jokes um, in this uh, in, in this set of stories. Carrie Bates actually becomes the villain briefly uh, in the Justice League uh, comics, in which he becomes uh, he, he receives superpowers and uh, has to uh, you know like be uh, uh, stripped of his powers by the by the heroes basically. Um, Julie then would go on to appear in a special birthday issue uh, of Superman, uh, Superman uh, 411, Superman 411, um, in September of 1985, was a dedicated story uh, about Julie Schwartz um, that took place on Earth Prime, um, and like the, the entire issue basically was like a ridiculous biography of him. Uh, that took place on Earth Prime and included references to all of the previous encounters that he had had with the various superheroes um, of Earth 1 and Earth 2. Starting in um, 1972, Jack Kirby had just come to DC. He kind of, you know, carried forward the tradition of putting himself in comics, or not putting himself in comics, but putting Stan in comics, basically, by introducing uh, versions of Stan and Roy Thomas uh, to make fun of, basically, because he was still pretty angry at them at the uh, about the uh, the way that his relationship at Marvel had ended and the fights that he was having with them over getting his original art back and that sort of thing. Um, and so, in the series, Mister Miracle, uh, Jack creates two uh, recurring villains, basically, or recurring supporting characters because it's hard to really call them bad guys um, of the Funky Flashman. And uh, Flunky Fash- Flashman's sidekick, House Roy. Um, and these two are very clearly uh, versions of Stan and Roy. Um, it's uh, Funky Flashman uh, basically approaches Mr. Miracle to become his promoter. Um, since, uh, you know, part of uh, Mr. Miracle's shtick is that he's the world's greatest uh, escape artist. And so Frunk- Flunky Fra- Flashman, it's hard to say, Flunky Flashman basically kind of like sets himself up to promote uh, uh, Mr. Miracle and basically start taking money for, you know, like uh, uh, for the work that the, you know, the star was doing, right? For, you know, like not contributing anything himself. Um, And so this was, you know, kind of like a dig at Stan of saying how Stan had basically made himself rich at the expense of Jack Kirby um, when Jack had done all the serious work. Over the course of the stories, uh, Funky steals a mother box from the New Gods and then gets in trouble uh, with the female Furies uh, and basically gets his ass kicked and, uh, you know, kind of like leaves the story for a little while. Then he comes back in a second series of stories where he is the promoter for the entire secret society of supervillains. Um, and then Funky came back again as a character that was not written by, by uh, Jack, but was basically a reference back to him in the Justice League International stories by uh, Keith Giffen primarily, in which he uh, um, cuts a deal for Mr. Miracle uh, to go on a galactic tour, uh, you know, putting on his pr- uh, show uh, that is uh, sponsored by uh, the Mr. Miracle Miracle Mister, um, which is a set of uh, intergalactic TV commercials that he basically forces Mr. Miracle to do. Um, and then he kind of like goes on tour, sells his contract to the supervillain Manga Khan, 
And Mr. Miracle has to, you know, kind of like travel the universe with Flashman getting him in trouble on a regular basis. Um, at this point, looking back at them, they seem almost kind of charming, right? Like Jack is really not willing to um, be nasty about Stan. He's still kind of like too fond of him. And so Funky actually kind of like comes across as, yes, he's a jerk, but he's a jerk with a heart of gold. And you can kind of see that's, you know, that, that like Jack still on some level seems to kind of like feel that way about Stan, even when he's making fun of him and, you know, like kind of tearing him apart in print. Um, it's kind of interesting to see that like, you know, Funky remains in the end, just not that bad a guy. The next set of stories that kind of are, you know, uh, are, are intersections with the superhero universe, with two different superhero universes, basically, um, involve a convention and parade that used to take place regularly in Rutland, Vermont, starting back in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. And they were run, the, the, the Rutland Halloween Parade, uh, which like coincided with a, you know, a comic convention that would happen in that town at the same time, was run by a guy named Tom Fagan. And Tom Fagan regularly used to have comic book professionals come out as his guests for that event and be, you know, like part of the parade as well as like part of the show and everything. And uh, he became fairly close friends with guys like Steve Englehart and Marv Wolfman and Len Wayne, Len Wayne and his wife, uh, Glennis, were all, you know, like regularly just, just became friends with, with Tom. And so they would put him and the Rutland event in their comics on a regular basis for both Marvel and DC because Marv and Len and Steve worked for both companies, right? And so, you know, the, there's a Rutland, there's a version of Rutland in both the Marvel universe and in the DC universe um, because of plots that they... Uh, you know, involved all of this in. Steve Englehart had uh, the, the the story in which the Phantom Stranger joins the Justice League actually takes place in Rutland in uh, 1972. In Marvel, the, the the location of Rutland is home to Bald Mountain, um, which was uh, for a while the location of a Dormammu cult um, in a set of stories, uh, and is also the location of the Wiseman Institute for the Criminally Insane. Um, in which Siren from X-Force was held there um, in, a, in a run of those stories in 95 and 96. Um, in the, the Avengers Defenders War, which was the kind of like a great crossover in the early 70s, 1973, between the two series, the Avengers and Defenders, um, they wind up fighting each other uh, in, a, in a, uh, a battle in which kind of like both sides are like being forced into combat by Dormammu and Loki. And uh, they're the ones actually in, a com in, a, in, in conflict, and Dormammu is manipulating the Defenders, and Loki is, of course, manipulating the Avengers, and they wind up like fighting each other. Um, at the end of that story, Loki is blasted by the evil eye and is basically turned into a child, um, is also blind uh, for a while. And Loki actually winds up living with Tom uh, Fagin, who takes him in. Uh, you know, to like take care of him until the next time Loki showed up in a story when he got his, you know, sight and his good senses back and became a supervillain again. That's a cool little story, uh, you know, featuring someone that they know. Yeah. Like I said, it was a regular, it's a regular kind of like running gag, right? Like, I mean, Tom Fagan appears in like two panels of probably 20 different comics over the course of this period because they just kept putting him into things. He must be a nice guy. By all accounts. Never met him, but in the mid 70s, 
kind of, you know, as part of this tradition, uh, Jim Starlin did kind of the same thing that Jack was doing at DC um, to, you know, take the piss from the people at the at comics he wasn't uh, getting along with. Starlin was uh, regularly arguing uh, with the management of Marvel at that point over uh, the Adam Warlock stories that he was doing in Strange Tales. He was constantly kind of like pushing the envelope of what could be allowed as far as uh, sex, as far as drugs, um, and just general kind of like counterculture stuff. And also, uh, you know, to be fair to management, Starlin was also late on a lot of work. So they were regularly angry at him for that. Um, and so uh, he wrote a story uh, in which Adam Warlock is basically kind of like traveling through some sort of like a dream dimension. And uh, we meet characters uh, called uh, Lenstein, L-E-N-S-T-E-A-N, and Jan Hatrumi, uh, H-A-T-R-O-O-M-I. And these two characters are obviously anagrams for Stan Lee and John Romita. And they appear as, uh, you know, kind of like uh, uh, evil tyrants who must be overthrown by Adam Warlock. Um, also, uh, two other cosmic clowns, you know, appear whose faces are drawn to look exactly like Marv Wolfman and Len Wein. And when Adam Warlock comes along to encounter them, the cosmic clowns are throwing pies at a character who is tied up to a fence who looks exactly like Roy Thomas. Um, this is uh, Adam Warlock comes in to rescue Roy, uh, you know, from this situation and smashes uh, Len and Marv's pies in their own faces uh, in order to defeat them. Um, this clearly meant something, uh, you know, kind of like much more specific to Jim where nobody is quite clear, uh, you know, this many years later, precisely what it was he was so mad about them, you know, like that month, why, why he was in favor of Roy and not of uh, Marv and, and Len. Um, but clearly he was at the time. Hilariously, Len, is, Len Wein is actually the editor of this series and clearly signed off on this appearing in the comics. So he had to have approved everything uh, you know, that actually like happened here. So at least Len probably thought it was funny or at least worth doing anyway. Steve Gerber, who was Jim's good friend, uh, was also fond of putting himself in the comics and uh, using comics to kind of like exercise his own kind of like personal issues he was having with people around him. And he was uh, writing Man-Thing at the time. And he finally kind of like came to the end of writing Man-Thing. He wrote uh, most of the first 22 issues of it. And then the last issue of Man-Thing that he does uh, is literally uh, the, the story begins with Steve Gerber himself writing a letter to Marvel's management explaining how that everything he has done up to this point in the comic is just writing down the adventures of Man-Thing that were dictated to him by Dakeem the Enchanter, who was a character in the Man-Thing comics. He was an Atlantean wizard who was, you know, kind of like helping out Man-Thing at that point. And so that uh, Dakeem would basically come to Steve Engelhardt's apartment and dictate him to him what the scripts of the Man-Thing comics should be. He then tells the final story uh, of Man-Thing that he was going to write and explains that, uh, you know, this, this demon Thog um, had nearly destroyed the universe. And, you know, he and Man-Thing, like Steve, like how got swept up into the story and Dakeem and Man-Thing and Steve Gerber between them barely managed to save the universe. And Steve Gerber is now too wiped out and overwhelmed by, uh, you know, his participation in the story to write any more Man-Thing issues. And he insists that Marvel find somebody else to script it because he quits. And that was his last issue. Man-Thing continued. Uh, for several more years and to a whole nother volume of, of stories and was uh, written when Chris Claremont was writing it 
Um, in 1981, Claremont had written 11 issues of Man-Thing himself and decides to go back to the same joke that Gerber had done and basically says that he is now the person who has been writing down all of these stories that dictated uh, to him. And in his story, in uh, issue uh, Man-Thing, volume two, number 11, um, Fogg returns to destroy the universe even more, kills Doctor Strange and Clea, uh, transforms Man-Thing back into Ted Salas, the human that he was before, and then transforms Chris Claremont himself into the Man-Thing. Um, and so as Man-Thing, Chris Claremont himself attacks Thog and manages to defeat him, undoing all of the stuff that had happened to this point, and returning Ted Salas to being the Man-Thing, and Chris Claremont is now no longer the Man-Thing. The last few panels of the story are Chris Claremont in a bar with Jim Shooter, explaining to him that like writing Man-Thing is just entirely too stressful and he can't do this anymore. And, uh, you know, Jim's going to have to find somebody else to write it because it's just too much, you know, it, it's, it's too terrifying. And Shooter, you know, agrees that clearly writing Man-Thing is a, you know, terribly dangerous uh, thing to do. And we're not sure if we can, you know, like afford to ask anybody uh, to take on that horrible role. And the two of them walk out of the bar, whereupon we see that Dakeem the Enchanter is in fact the bartender uh, who is, you know, like cleaning a glass and just sort of like winks at the reader, you know, kind of thing in, in the in the last panel. Very fun. I've always been fond of those stories. That's a, that's a, that's a great run. Um, in that stretch also, uh, there is a series in, 19, in the mid-70s where uh, Impossible Man uh, decides that uh, if the Fantastic Four have a comic, he should have a comic too. And he goes to uh, the Marvel bullpen offices and basically smashes them up until Stan agrees to create an Impossible Man comic, um, which he is, of course, totally lying about and uh, has no intention of doing. Stan also appears, um, and in a you know a, a version of Stan appears um, in a Marvel team up number seventy four in October of nineteen seventy eight, in which Stan is the asked to be the host of Saturday Night Live. And so goes to be on Saturday Night Live with musical guest Rick Jones, which is my favorite joke in that entire comic. And uh, in that story, he is there with, of course, the entire Not Ready for Primetime players. And uh, Spider-Man, Peter Parker, and Mary Jane are in the audience uh, just for fun, basically, just to go see a taping of Saturday Night Live. And John Belushi uh, actually receives a magical ring in the mail by accident, and the Silver Samurai shows up. Uh, in order to, uh, you know, like find that ring, basically, and gets into a samurai battle with John Belushi. Um, it's absolutely demented and great fun. And, uh, you know, Stanley is clearly having a ball doing this sort of silliness. John yeah. Byrne puts himself in his own comics all the time. He also loves this joke. He makes this sort of like reference all the time. The first time that he does it is in Iron Fist number eight in October uh, 1976, uh, where he is rescued from being mugged by Iron Fist. The most notable time that Byrne actually appears in a comic, of course, is in Fantastic Four number 262, which was Assistant Editor's Month that month uh, in January of 1984, when The Watcher shows up at John Byrne's house and says that he has to go into space to witness the trial of Reed Richards uh, because he is the, uh, you know, as the writer of Fantastic Four at the time, he is the, uh, you know, the scribe, basically, the uh, the recorder of these important events, and that it's important that Byrne be there personally when Reed Richards is put on trial by the Shi'ar Empire uh, for the crime of having saved Galactus's life. And it's a huge uh, mega comic event, basically, and at the end of it, when, um, you know, the 
forces of the universe basically uh you know all get involved in this trial basically and at the end john byrne is returned uh to earth uh to write this all down and make sure that it gets into a comic book so that like our, our readers can understand what happened um also byrne uh writes a story in uh, starbrand in 1988 takes place at a comic convention uh in which he and a bunch of other creators uh are killed uh in a superhero battle um, and we see a number of kind of like familiar faces that show up uh, over the course of the story uh, before they are all uh, killed before the end of the story. Yep. That gets us to probably the one of the best, most well-known ones is the end of Animal Man. Right. Animal Man in 1990 ends with uh, Animal Man has been, his family has died, uh, a, a series of terrible tragedies have happened, and he is kind of like wandering through various dimensions. He's in DC limbo for a while and a bunch of other dimensions, and he finally kind of like emerges from this horrible set of kind of surreal trials at Grant Morrison's apartment, where he can confront him with the question of why have you made my life so miserable, right? Like, why have you done all of these terrible things to which Morrison can only reply because I did it to entertain the readers. I did it because, you know, to make a story for the readers. And of course, animal man is horrified by this answer, right? Like by the idea that like everything that's happened, all the tragedies in his life are only there to amuse an audience of like cosmic beings that he can barely understand the existence of. Um, Morrison then kind of like takes time out in the middle of that story to basically, uh, you know, kind of like uh, uh, pump uh, a series to well to talk about why he created the series in the first place and to uh, provide a bunch of information for people about how to join various, uh, you know, like vegan and animal rescue groups. Um, and then at the end of the story, which is the last Animal Man that he does, basically he kind of like uh, as God, you know, like recreates. Uh, animal man's family and everything and basically returns him to a happy ending as kind of his last you know act as god in the story john ostrander uh made a kind of like joke reference to that in suicide squad where briefly for a uh for, for a brief period uh suicide squad membership includes a villain a a, a character you know, a member of the suicide squad called the author who looks exactly like grant morrison um, and his superpower is to type things into his typewriter and make them happen. However, uh, he's not a very fast typer, and therefore when the Suicide Squad is sent into action, he is still trying to type what he wants his superpowers to do and gets shot in the head because he doesn't type fast enough. Steve Gerber, going back to you know people who were annoyed at uh, uh, this, uh, going on with his uh, ongoing conflicts with Marvel, uh, Jim Shooter was writing Secret Wars 2 and decided that it was a good idea um, perhaps an unfortunate choice to take a shot at Gerber um, since Gerber was in the process of filing lawsuits against Marvel at the time. And so in Secret Wars 2, there is a character uh, that appears in uh, uh, July of 1985. Uh, the character is called Stuart Codwell. And Stuart Codwell looks exactly like Steve Gerber. And he is a Hollywood screenwriter which is what Gerber was doing at the time. Uh, Gerber was actually one of, at the time, was uh, writing for a bunch of animated series in LA. And uh, Stuart Cadwell basically is frustrated with people who are hindering his creativity and don't appreciate all of the great things that he is writing, despite the fact that he is clearly writing the most like ridiculous tripe for children's uh, TV shows. And the Beyonder, who happens to be wandering through Hollywood at the time, um, you know, meets him and decides to uh, give him all of the powers that he needs, uh, transforming him into Thunder Sword, uh, 
you know, a being of like enormous powerful with a, a magical lightning shooting sword and basically sets him loose to destroy the hypocrisy of Los Angeles. Um, in case you didn't get the joke that this was supposed to be Steve Gerber, um, calling him Thundersword is a reference because Steve Gerber was one of the guys who wrote Thundar the Bavarian. And so, you know, there, there are multiple Thundar references in this as well. Um, a lot of people thought that this was kind of inappropriate, right? I mean, Jim Shooter was not a very terribly popular guy uh, at the time. He had driven away a bunch of people at Marvel. And a lot of people kind of like pointed to this as the sort of crap that, you know, Shooter would do basically to like kind of like publicly humiliate somebody that he was having a fight with, despite the fact that as we've kind of shown in this episode, there's a fine tradition of doing this in comics that goes back way before Shooter. Uh, nevertheless, at the time, there were a number of people who thought that this was a, uh, you know, kind of like a, a low blow, basically. John Byrne and John Ostrander kind of like took their revenge on Shooter uh, for this when they did the Legends big summer crossover for DC two years later. Um, in that story, uh, they portray a new supervillain who is called Sunspot. Um, who looks exactly like Jim Shooter. He is tall and thin and clearly is, you know, a John Byrne drawn of his face, who is kind of a pastiche character of Starbrand, a character that Jim Shooter created. Um, and he fights uh, Guy Gardner over the course of uh, an issue of Legends, claims that with his powers, he is going to start a new universe, capital N, capital U. Um, and then in the middle of his fight with Guy Gardner, actually shoots his own foot off with his powers. And uh, is the, the last we see of him is him, you know, like lying on the ground, basically crying and screaming as he's grabbing like the, you know, the, the, the stump of his ankle, basically having shot his own foot off. Everybody kind of like agreed that that was pretty funny. And, uh, you know, that Jim had pretty much, you know, asked for that one. So that's pretty funny. So just a few left, right? There's a couple more we want to like hit in this. Um, the, the, there's. There's there's a there's a the first version of a joke and then the best version of the joke that happened afterwards, right? In a set of stories uh, that in a Superman series in 1998, when Mike Carlin was one of kind of like the 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 main people running kind of like the the multiple Superman titles, right? Like he was the editor of that section of DC. Um, there is a a couple of stories, one in particular where Mixius Pidlick, who is the you know the 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 fifth dimensional elf thing um you know who like shows up periodically to you know like play tricks on and harass superman um decides that it would be funny to show up and like play tricks on and harass doomsday and uh that goes badly and uh mixes pidlick is killed and so um he basically uh travels to heaven you know after having been killed and gets into a confrontation with god and god is of course portrayed to look exactly like mike carlin and after kind of like complaining about, uh, you know, his mistreatment in this comic, uh, manages to convince God to return him and, you know, allow him to kind of like return to his life as an ordinary Superman villain. It's not that good a story. There's a funny little twist to it and everything, but it's just not that it's, it's not that good. The joke would be done again by Mark Wade in Fantastic Four number 511. In this series of stories, the thing has just recently died. And... Basically, the entire rest of the Fantastic Four have gone into like some version of the afterlife in order to try to bring him back to life. And, you know, they've kept his body alive on a, you know, on like a super ventilator of some sort, some sort of, you know, like a device that is keeping his body technically alive. But, you know, he's he doesn't seem to be coming back. And they encounter Ben. Uh, in the afterlife, and uh, he seems to have quit. He seems to have kind of like given up. 
And Johnny in particular doesn't believe it's the real Ben because the real Ben would never quit fighting, et cetera. They go through a whole extended, you know, kind of like metaphor basically in which, you know, they basically convince Ben, you know, to kind of like rejoin the fight to, you know, not, not to give up, not to quit that everybody back on earth still needs him and still loves him, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he decides to, you know, to, to turn back at the gates of heaven, basically. Um, this is of course chosen as uh, accepted as the right decision by God basically, who's like steps out and like allows them to uh, encounter him briefly. And of course, heaven, when they open the door, the gates to heaven, they walk into Jack Kirby's work office, <laughs> right? And God is in fact portrayed as Jack Kirby sitting at a, you know, the pastel board, right? Like as he's actually kind of like still drawing the issues of this while he is smoking a cigar and everything uh, and has a, you know, kind of like lovely little discussion uh, with the Fantastic Four before returning them basically to our reality. And I think if anybody is going to get to that treatment, uh, the the joke certainly works much better with Jack Kirby than it does with Mike Garland. So that's a, a lovely little story. And that entire run of Mark Wade is strongly rep- uh, recommended if you haven't read them. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great issue. All right. And I think that is pretty much it. That's all the big ones. Yeah, if you've got any other ones that you liked or uh, that you're aware of that we missed in here, please, uh, you know, sign us up, uh, sign up with us, join the um, Discord and the Patreon and let us know what we missed. We'd be happy to do a follow-up. Please do, yeah. Please submit your uh, your readers appearing comments, ideas, yeah, or, uh, experiences. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I've been Steve Tasker. I'm Darren Watts. Have a good night. Thanks for coming. <laughs>